Happy 30th anniversary to the Americans with Disabilities Act landmark legislation around the world. I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, episode 52. And we'll be talking a lot about the ADA's 30th anniversary, how far we've come, how far we still have to go, blind pride, and a lot more. Mosen at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Hope that you are doing well. Thank you for checking out the show. Again, it promises to be yet another very busy one, and I really do appreciate that. It's a special weekend because we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I know that it's something that George H.W. Bush was always particularly proud of. He really believed in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I know that blind people around the world have been enjoying some pretty significant legislative victories for a century or more. We've always been good lobbyists, we blind people. But this is very significant, this piece of legislation, because it is disability-wide, and I think it has inspired many people outside the U.S. It reminds us of a time when people did look to America for inspiration And I hope very much that that time will come back again. So if you have any thoughts on the ADA, any reflections, if you were involved at the time on advocacy for its passage, because I seem to remember the NFB had a few reservations about the ADA, didn't they? I think they were concerned that you had to have the right in the legislation to refuse an accommodation if you didn't feel you required it. So it was a bit touch and go for a while there. But if you have any memories of the ADA or reflections on what it means to you 30 years on, is it adequate? Do there need to be changes? Do people exploit it? Has it made life significantly better for disabled people? Let me know your thoughts. Someone who has already done that is Tracy Duffy. And she says, I am pleased we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the ADA, but I think it needs to be revised. 
it doesn't have the teeth it once had, particularly with respect to employment. This is true for blind people in particular. Employers have learned that they can say their software doesn't work with JAWS and that they do not want someone messing about in their system. Many companies who once employed quite a number of blind people have managed to get out of that, and quite a number of blind people have found themselves having to go to work for one of the workshops or something where they take a pay cut compared to what they had been making elsewhere. I keep hearing that there are threats to undo the laws or rules which have allowed us to have vending facilities set aside for the blind and other employment opportunities. If that should happen, unemployment among the blind will climb higher and higher. It seems we have lost ground already, and I want there to be a more encouraging future for the blind children who are about to enter the job market. Thanks for getting us started on this topic, Tracy. And I know that I could be accused in making this next point of going after clickbait or trying to get a reaction, but I'm honestly not. I think this is just a cultural difference that I've never been able to understand, despite the fact that I've lived in America, married Americans, (laughs) worked with a lot of Americans, and I still don't get this. I talk to people about it sometimes at dinner, you know, and and have a bit of a wide-ranging discussion. I don't understand why ACB and particularly NFB, which is all about the equality of blind people and not asking for special treatment that we don't need, why is the vending program under Randolph Shepard justified in the United States? And I'm not asking it out of any disrespect or anything like that, and I know that the vendor affiliates of both organizations are very powerful. You know, ACB vendors, 25 votes, say no more, (laughs) right? I just don't understand how philosophically blind Americans justify this. If we believe that we can compete on terms of equality with the sighted, what's the philosophical justification for having a program that gives priority to blind people setting up vending stands in government facilities? How does that or does that actually fit in with NFB philosophy in particular? So I'm interested in trying to understand that or seeking some justification from people about why that still happens in 2020. ADA thoughts, it's a mixed bag. In some ways we seem to have gained, but in others, particularly employment matters, web accessibility matters, we seem to be stuck and we need someone to rigorously, vigorously, immensely and intensely enforce it and get people to do the right thing. If not by negotiation, then we'll just get more involved. Absolutely fair comment, right? The unemployment statistics do not appear to have headed in the right direction as a result of any legislation in the Western world that I'm aware of. So how do we fix it? Would people support some sort of quota system? maybe in the federal government or governments of various descriptions around the place, that a set percentage must be disabled. But then how do you assess that? How do you monitor it? What is actually the answer? And not only have we had legislation like the ADA in various jurisdictions around the world, we've also had an explosion in assistive technology. When you think of how far we have come 
in terms of what we can accomplish thanks to technology in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Really, paper's not a problem anymore because offices have gone paperless. We're doing email, we're writing Word documents, all that sort of stuff. And yet still, the needle doesn't seem to have moved. How do we move it? And Charlie Crawford says, I remember Justin Dart spearheading, or at least having the appearance of spearheading, the effort to get the legislation drafted and passed. When I first met Justin, I was not super impressed with him, but I will say that his sincerity and dogged work to improve the lives of people with disabilities really impressed me over time. The times were changing back then, and I ultimately came to embrace the cross-disability tenant of the independent living movement once it became a living thing rather than a political strategy. Of course, the dynamic tension between the need to address issues of the various discrete groups of people always were front and centre in the deliberations of all the players, and the challenge was always how to move the ball forward while being considerate of all the needs. I had to deal with this on the micro stage while Justin and the national players had the same problems on a national scale to address. Was the answer the ADA? In some ways it was, and in others it was not. The equal rights approach of the ADA did assist blind people in advancing audio description and still operates to help. Likewise, pedestrian safety is being advanced by the same idea of equity being important. At issue is the extent to which the basic interests of the whole blindness community can be met by society and how that can be done without disenfranchising others with their own legitimate needs. I suppose that is the bottom line political question facing all democracies. I don't pretend to know all the answers, but I do believe that in major part there needs to be a reasonable share of the avarice of the society being made available for equity to be met. And of course, among many other things, Charlie is a former commissioner of the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind and former executive director of the American Council of the Blind. Thank you, Charlie. Dan Fry is in touch as well. He has held various positions of influence in the blind community in the United States and worked in New Zealand for a while as well. He's currently in New Hampshire. Separately, he was invited to share his thoughts on the ADA, and so he's sent those thoughts along for inclusion on the show. He writes, 30 years ago, just as I was entering law school, President George H. W. Bush signed the landmark Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, on July the 26th, 1990. We all were filled with the promise of new civil rights privileges coming to fruition, allowing persons with disabilities to finally enjoy the same basic entitlements that everyone else had long understood as standard. And to be sure, some of these privileges did take hold and did positively transform the lives of the disability community. For me, prior to the adoption of the ADA, unfettered access to employment opportunities and full use of accommodations in both public and private settings was an aspirational dream. Afterwards, access to these rights were theoretically available to me. For me, prior to the adoption of the ADA, unfettered access to voting using an independent private ballot, both in person and through absentee protocols, was an aspirational dream. Afterwards, access to these fundamental constitutional rights were theoretically available to me. For me, prior to the adoption of the ADA, 
unfettered access to accessible websites was an aspirational dream. Afterwards, by leveraging the legal authority inherent in the ADA to challenge discriminatory behavior, many more websites are accessible, usable, and expand the right of persons with disabilities to enjoy the full advantages of the Internet. Despite the transformative promise of the ADA to create an equal playing field for persons with disabilities to live and learn in a newly open society, these 30 years have required that persons with disabilities remain vigilant and diligent to secure and guarantee these rights that have been promised in law but not fully recognized in practice. During these last three decades, Congress, responding to the advocacy demands of the disability community, has had to adopt the Americans with Disabilities Restoration Act, a legislative measure to clarify entitlements of the ADA when the Supreme Court and other federal courts failed to positively interpret the spirit of the law. So, while we can celebrate the passage of the ADA, We also mark this anniversary with a somber awareness that the ADA creates a solid foundation upon which to build a strong civil rights infrastructure. But there also remains much to accomplish along our slow march to freedom. Very good. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Also, Charlie's comment before brought up a point that I did want to follow up on, and that is that the term disability is very generic, isn't it? And we do have to be careful that the homogenizing of disability, the lumping it all into one big group, doesn't mean that some of the unique needs of people with specific impairments are overlooked. And I think that is the challenge. And that certainly was a very controversial thing for a time. I remember in the 90s, there was a lot of discussion about whether blind people might be surrendering something by throwing in its lot with the pan-disability movement, as it were. This is Dan Fry, and I thought I would leave a brief voice message to respond to your understandable inquiry about the perceived philosophical complications of the Randolph-Shepard program. I feel some obligation as the former national manager of this program with the U.S. Department of Education to at least articulate a point of view about the uh, program and the fact that it has been remarkably successful in creating lives that have been truly fulfilling, both financially, intellectually, and otherwise, for those who have been involved in this program. Currently, due to the variety of other opportunities that exist in the career fields for blind people. I am delighted to see that there is uh, a decreasing number of people who are actually involved in the Randolph Shepard program. Uh, Currently, the numbers run between 1,800 and 1,900 people participating in programs as small as a set of vending machines or as complex and sophisticated as running military dining operations for several thousands of people a day, which truly represents taking the Randolph Shepard program to a new and probably unexpected dimension. 
And now to the philosophical qualm that many people feel, and which I can appreciate, having considered things through different philosophical lenses through the course of my life. I would say first that you need to be mindful that this program was adopted in June of 1936, June 20, 1936, uh, to be specific, and that during that period of Great Depression, uh, opportunities for blind people were simply sparse and incredibly limited. And we hear numbers ranging from 35 to 70% rates of unemployment. But during that era, it was more more likely to be 90 to 100%. So a program was created that would, frankly, address the need to eat as opposed to the need for civil rights. And it's kind of like that process of getting the essential things you need first, and then as you gradually um, move forward, you look to more philosophical things that are consistent. Maslow's uh, what I'm thinking of. The second thing I would say is this, while it is not a competitive process, again, until we create opportunities uh, through vocational rehabilitation or otherwise that dramatically improve the unemployment rate among our community, it is a program that does give people who have entrepreneurial inclinations and aptitude an opportunity to find work. And the work is now more diverse than it has ever been before. There was a time when blind people would sit under the stairs in their local courthouse or or building. But today, our blind entrepreneurs are functioning like businessmen and women, using complex marketing uh, undertaking contracts that are much more difficult to administer, uh, working in concert with federal governments and others to really serve our country, our military diners and, and the like. Thanks so much, Dan, for sharing your first-hand experience as someone who has administered that program. That was a very interesting message. And for me, it raises a couple of questions. The first is, Do you think in 2020, or do our listeners think in 2020, it is still needed? And second, if it is, could it serve as a template to encourage blind people in other industries? We're going to talk quite a bit on the show today about attitudinal barriers, things that are still stopping us from succeeding. And so I do wonder whether if you had, say, political parties with quotas, so people saw more blind people in public service positions like in politics – or blind people in the media, for example, or these really high-profile kind of roles where just seeing blind people or disabled people in general just getting out and about doing stuff, would that actually help to shift the needle and change those perceptions? I look forward to people's comments on all of that. On the subject of employment and the ADA and those things we've been discussing, Munua says, in my opinion, we can have all the legislation we want But if there's no drive among disabled people themselves, the negative trend will continue. While I love the idea of supplemental income for those of us who are disabled, sadly too many of us are afraid of losing the guarantee that supplemental government benefits provides. I believe there are those who genuinely can't work, but there are just as many 
who have made an intentional decision to not move forward and become self-sustained without benefits. Until we stop normalizing a benefit-for-life system, if one is disabled, I doubt things will change much. Well, thanks, Minoa, for that. I'd like to offer an alternative perspective. I think that whether you are working or whether you are not working, there should be benefits available to disabled people for life. In my view, the problem that we have is that welfare and work are often considered to be mutually exclusive, and I don't think that should be the case. In New Zealand and Australia and a few countries, blind people are quite fortunate, and I guess this stems back to the fact that blind people have been lobbying for a long time, and there are some anomalies, some really huge ones in our benefit system here. But there is the concept that says that if you are blind, there are costs of blindness which are ongoing no matter whether you have work or not, and that if those costs are not compensated for in some way, then you are financially penalized for the privilege of being blind. So your discretionary income as somebody who earns is actually less because you are blind. So I strongly believe that there should be a payment which is available to blind people, which exists even when you are working, to compensate for those extra costs. And those extra costs include assistive technology. They include having to live closer to public transport so you can be independent. You might need more room because of the blindness-specific technology that you have to accommodate, and that takes up space. So there's a range of costs. So I would like to see a culture that says, yes, we should compensate for that, not to mention the underemployment that many disabled people face because of poor attitudes. I also think that while there will always be people who abuse the system, in my experience in my day job, most people that I meet are absolutely desperate to work. It may be that they start giving up after a while because of too many setbacks. And it's sad when you get to that place in your life, you know, where you just feel it's no longer worth trying. Gary O'Donoghue writes, great to have this discussion about the 30th anniversary of the ADA. It's also the 25th anniversary of what was called the DDA in Britain, Disability Discrimination Act. Again, as in most other countries, the legislation has scarcely moved the needle in terms of the unemployment rate among blind people. I've never really heard any kind of convincing explanation of why this is. The only thing that makes sense to me is that the attitudes and barriers to employing blind people are so deep-rooted that shifting them will take generations. It will also take concerted efforts from governments and, if necessary, punitive measures to bring more employers to the table. On one other point mentioned by one of your correspondents, no one ever got rich on benefits. The idea that 75% of the blind working age population is unemployed because they are content to sit around and take a few subsistence bucks is laughable. I know as someone who has been lucky to be employed all my adult life, I am still terrified of unemployment just because of the experience the vast majority of blind people go through when trying to get a job. After all, employment equals economic independence and economic independence leads to all sorts of other forms of independence. Thanks very much, Gary. I can tell you I've had periods of unemployment and it's been the most demoralizing thing because when you're cruising along in a really nice job, you think, well, if something happens to my job, I should be able to pick something else up. Look, I've got a pretty good CV, that sort of thing. But there is nothing like the stark reality of being confronted with those attitudinal barriers that you talk about to put you in your place. 
doesn't matter how qualified you are when those attitudinal barriers are so difficult to surmount. I'm delighted to tell you it's now time to say heya to heya. And Heya Simkin says, hi, Jonathan and listeners. I think you're right about being annoyed at the correlation between blindness and ignorance. It has driven me crazy since I was a kid. This topic brings up a broader linguistic hypothesis called the Wolf-Sapphire Hypothesis that states that words reflect thought, and therefore, if you change the words, you change the thought behind them. This is also the hypothesis that the People First movement is based on. This hypothesis is untested since you can't fully know what people are thinking without them telling you. Even then, they may tell you what you want to hear and think something else entirely and you wouldn't necessarily know. Therefore, you have to change the idea and not the wording. And interestingly enough, according to a YouTube video I saw on a science communication channel called SciShow, it's next to impossible to change people's mind. Advocates would do well to bear that in mind. Advocates would also do well to bear in mind the fact that advocacy has two sides. There's one side that advocates, but there's also the side that has to listen, and the side talking can't really make the other listen and fully internalize what is being said. I was told so many times that if you explain yourself clearly enough, people will listen and change their minds. I had to learn the hard way that this is often not the case. I suspect that when people know they don't know something, they know this and are willing to learn. When they think they do know something, they don't feel the need to learn something they already know. Combine this with feeling really good about themselves for doing something they perceive as pro-social and not too inconvenient, and you have an inner monologue that could drown out bagpipes and thunder and roadworks combined. I can't cope with that. I had to learn that the hard way. Nobody prepares you for that. All these things combine to make it hard to convince people that blind people aren't ignorant or overgrown children or a problem to be quickly solved so that nothing bad happens on their watch. If we are perceived like that, we're not going to get hired and no proper wording will change that. I admire anyone who is a successful advocate who makes things better for the rest of us all over the world, but I just don't know how they succeed. Thanks for the email, Haya. I definitely hear the frustration in it, and I also understand the frustration in it as somebody who has done a lot of advocacy. And you've made several points I'd like to respond to, and maybe others will respond to your email and maybe my response. Let me first talk about the People First movement and why I think it's well-intentioned, but a bad idea. Sometimes we have international speakers come to New Zealand and we freely talk about disabled people and blind people and you can almost hear the inhalation of breath. <coughs> oh my goodness, the, the, the heathens, why are they doing this? We made a conscious decision here in New Zealand, probably about 20 years ago, to use that language. And it was interesting how it came about and why it came about. And I would like to talk people through this because it may be something that people haven't thought about before and it may give people a new perspective. I am mindful of what you say about how infrequently you can change someone's mind, 
But if nothing else, at least it's an insight into another country's culture and you may dismiss it and just keep doing what you're doing and that's fine. But you might find that interesting. This debate really heated up big time in New Zealand when a government about 20 years ago decided that New Zealand needed a disability strategy, a government document that essentially outlined in consultation with disabled people what they would do to improve the lot of disabled people, to get better public policy, to get better outcomes, to make sure that disabled people had a greater input into the decisions that were being made about the services that were being delivered to them. Now, we're no utopia in New Zealand, that I can tell you. So I'm not trying to hold us out as some bastion of success. But when we had that debate, the documents that went out in the initial round for discussion talked about people experiencing disability. And a lot of New Zealanders who read that document, myself included, thought this is just yucky, pukey, ridiculous. People experiencing disability, what a mouthful. And I think they were basing it on UN documentation and that sort of thing. And it was amazing to me how many people wrote back, because I thought I was some sort of anomaly on this, how many people wrote back on this original consultation document and said, we're disabled people. And when they quizzed us a bit further, what we believe in New Zealand is that describing someone as a person with a disability is language that absolves society of its responsibility. So let me talk about that some more. This is all about the social model of disability. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that causes my disability? In New Zealand, we make a distinction between impairment and disability. So my impairments are that I'm blind and I'm hearing impaired. So those are the things that have a sort of a medical connotation to them. But I'm disabled because society chooses to disable me by not being inclusive. If every document was available in Braille, if every street crossing was accessible, announcing the streets that I was coming up to, if every building had Braille signage, I wouldn't be disabled. I'd still have my impairment. But it is society's choices, the limitations of infrastructure and public policy that society chooses to make, consciously or unconsciously, that makes me disabled. So I'm not a person with a disability. I'm a disabled person. You can argue I'm a person with an impairment. Some people still do use terms like people who are blind here, but not many. So by talking about disabled people, we are essentially saying, society, you are disabling us, and society, you need to fix it so that a vision impairment or a hearing impairment is not disabling. That's the first thing. Regarding the person-first language in another context, like people who are blind or people who are low vision or whatever, one of the problems that many of us here have with that language is that it is so convoluted, it actually draws more attention to the impairment than it otherwise would. It makes it seem abnormal and irregular and worthy of special linguistic gymnastics. It achieves exactly the opposite of what we want to achieve because what you then find is that people get very nervous talking around us, asking questions about our impairments because they're so worried about saying the wrong thing. Then you get this narrative building that somehow the term blind 
is inappropriate to use at the best of times and on and on it goes. If I meet someone who's really tall, I'm not going to say to them, my goodness, you are a person experiencing tallness or you are a person with height or a person with tallness. I'm just going to say, you're a tall person. If someone's given a great speech, I'm not going to say you are a person with eloquence, a person with articulateness. I'm going to say that was a really articulate speech. So what I'm saying is that by having to go through verbal convoluted gymnastics to define one particular characteristic, we're essentially singling it out for special attention, singling it out for negativity. For me, just going out there and saying I'm a blind person is a source of blind pride. That's why I do not use person-first language, and a lot of people in New Zealand don't use it either, and when I hear it, it now sort of sticks out, because it does seem so cumbersome. You raise a really interesting point about advocacy, particularly in the era that we're in now, where people are so polarized, and it's hard to convince anyone of anything, and on social media, it's kind of this ridiculous echo chamber I would make a couple of points. The first is I think it's important to know when it's worth having a discussion to attempt to convince someone of an alternative viewpoint. On social media, it's very seldom the case that you're going to be in an environment where what you say might change someone's mind. I got on Twitter in about 2007, I think, and I've learned a long time ago that it's usually not worth getting involved in an argument on Twitter with someone because all it does is make you angry, makes you frustrated, raises your blood pressure, and no one is going to think differently by the end of it. But advocacy to people who can really make a difference, who have an obligation to be a bit more objective, can make a difference. And I'm very honored to have been in a position where I've been able to help to make a difference in that regard. The thing that immediately comes to mind, particularly as we celebrate the anniversary of the ADA, is the involvement I had with a couple of things in the 1990s. The first was that there was some really ambiguous language in our old Juries Act. It could be construed to mean that no disabled person could ever serve on a jury in New Zealand because the Act was written in 1908 when it was just assumed that they couldn't do such a thing, nor should they do such a thing. The language was ambiguous, though, so some people said, oh, no, it only bars people who are incapable of serving because of those impairments. So I had to lobby quite strenuously to get that provision removed. And I was on TV debating some pretty eminent Queen's Council lawyers who opposed the idea that blind people should be on a jury. But in the end, While I may have been vilified on the talk shows and stuff as a blind radical, the only people I needed to convince were enough legislators to get the law changed, and I was able to do that. Similarly with copyright legislation that we passed here in New Zealand that was the precursor to the Marrakesh Treaty. It all started here in New Zealand when we passed a law back in 1994 that made the case that access to written material was no different from access to the built environment. It was well accepted that buildings should be wheelchair accessible. So we were saying that all written material should be able to be modified as of right without having to seek the permission of the copyright holder. It was a radical idea at the time. And the authors 
hated me. I got a call from a representative of the uh, author's lobby group, and he said, do you steal things, Mr. Mosin, off everybody or just off authors? He was really annoyed with me. But in the end, we made the case to the legislators who got that law changed. And of course, it was eventually emulated around the world. I talked to uh, people in NFB and uh, ACB in the late 1990s, and the Chafee Amendment was passed, modelled on the New Zealand uh, legislation. And eventually, we got the Marrakesh Treaty. And of course, you can have no greater proof of the fact that sometimes advocacy pays huge dividends than the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act itself. So the trick is, I think, to have a clear argument, to hold your fire and not get involved. You know, Pick your battles, as they say. Don't get involved in battles that really aren't going to achieve anything other than raise blood pressure. But also try and look at it from both sides. If there is one piece of advice I would offer to would-be advocates other than being clear and articulate and knowing your facts and exactly what you want and suggesting a very specific outcome at the end of the process, it would be to try and look at things from a left-wing and a right-wing perspective. Some will be motivated by equality, by making the world a fairer place. For others, an investment kind of argument, an economic investment argument or a self-determination type argument will resonate better. But I get it. Advocacy can be like banging your head against a brick wall and after a while your head hurts. But every so often, the wall will move. And when it does, we all win. John writes in from Australia, I agree strongly that advocacy is useful and that it does work in many cases. For instance, BCA and other advocates here in Australia got ABC and SBS to provide audio description on free-to-air TV this year after advocating for many years. This would not have been possible without direct and prolonged advocacy. They did not take no for an answer. On the idea of people-first language, I would contend that it's political correctness. I define political correctness as ideas which are pushed by organizations and so-called important personalities, such as MPs. For instance, I have never heard any of my friends describing themselves as visually impaired or saying that they are going to listen to a TV show. It is blindness and other organizations who contort and try not to use the B word. Most people from the top would say differently abled, etc. I've had teachers, blindness organizations, and other people telling me these things, and I always wonder, what is wrong with the word blind? Why should you say, oh, you are awkward, pause, visually impaired? It makes me uncomfortable, more uncomfortable than if they had simply used the word blind. And John, I think this really raises the importance of making sure that blind people and disabled people of all kinds are in leadership positions in the organizations that provide services to us. We must insist on it. It's not like there aren't qualified people out there who can do the work. And in my view, the best way to move this particular needle is to get government to start sending some pretty strong signals. If there is competition for funding for the provision of specific services, one significant KPI, key performance indicator, that will be used to determine which organization gets the funding if there's something that's being contested, should be, is this organization genuinely 
disability driven. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. To Canada we go for this. Hello, Jonathan. My name is Oas, and I really enjoy listening to your podcast. To what extent are careers pursued in any field limited to people with no vision? The reason I ask is this, because I have mainly seen people with no vision pursue careers in humanities. However, I would like to pursue a bachelor's degree and become a child life specialist. These professionals help with organizing programs to help pediatric patients have fun during an admission at the hospital. Also, these professionals go with pediatric patients to medical procedures like surgeries to reduce their anxiety by educating them about the treatment, as well as by using calming techniques. The Child Life Program at the hospital I was treated even provides iPads, movies, etc. to help youth stay entertained at the hospital. Well, always, it's wonderful to get your email. And let me just say that, of course, there are some things that at the moment blindness precludes. For example, it would be impossible for you to be a truck driver or a taxi driver right now. But for the most part, you are not going to be limited in anything that you want to do with your life by blindness. For the most part, there'll be three things that have the potential to limit you. One is other people's perceptions of what blind people can do, because we have to accept the fact that when you've got sight, you become really dependent on it. And when you become really dependent on it, it can sometimes be hard to imagine how somebody like you, who's coming along with ambitions and dreams, can do the thing that you want to do. So when that happens, the important things are to be armed with the facts, to be realistic about your own abilities, and to never lose belief in yourself. So the first thing is other people's attitudes. The second potential limiting factor that you might face is opportunity. Opportunity is a big thing. It's the opportunity to be able to get the training that you need in the skills of blindness. That can be traveling independently and safely. It can be mastering the technology that you need to succeed in today's workplace. It can be reading in Braille, which is the key to literacy, and it sounds like you're well on the way there. And of course, opportunity, as it is for everybody, can be about being in the right place at the right time and finding somebody who's willing to give you a fair shake. And the third thing that could limit you is you. It is really hard when you're bombarded by a world that doesn't think blind people are capable of very much. The trick is not to get bitter about that. We can challenge it. We can work positively to change it, but we must never internalize it. You've always got to understand that blindness, with a few exceptions that relate specifically to visual tasks, need not stop you from being anything you want to be. In my day job, I'm chief executive of an organization that seeks to find opportunity for disabled people in New Zealand. And one of the things that comes up all the time is that out of ignorance rather than malice, many employers confuse the means and the end. For example, you might see a job that says that a driver's license is required. And when you inquire a bit deeper to find out why is a driver's license required, it's because 
you have to go and visit clients or potential customers or something like that. Now, the employer has quickly jumped to a conclusion that says that a driver's license is required, but they can easily accommodate you by making sure that you have access to funding. If they were going to give you a company vehicle anyway, why can't they pay for your taxi, travel or an Uber? You could get out there just as efficiently. That's what we call alternative techniques. So when somebody tells you that something can't be done because you're blind, they are usually wrong. That's why it's really useful to be in touch with blind adults to ask advice about specific things. There is a wonderful resource, and I know that you are in Canada, but it's a website, so anybody can access it, called AFB Career Connect. And the CNIB may well have something similar in Canada, I don't know. The idea here is that you can go to a website and find out if another blind person is doing the job that you want to do. If so, how are they doing it? And in many cases, they'll be prepared to connect with you and provide a bit of advice and mentoring. One of the most powerful tools in the job search is what's known as the information interview. I've made some amazing contacts over the years without having any other agenda than just getting knowledge. I've knocked on the door of some pretty powerful people and said, I'm really interested in how you got into the work that you're doing, what you look for when you're employing, what can you tell me? And you get information, but you also build up your networks. I'm absolutely confident that you can do the job that you want to do. Believe in yourself, study hard, put the work in to be the best version of you that you can be, get those blindness skills sorted and your academic qualifications in place, and you will go places. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt. You will have the career you want. It'll rock. Good luck. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's Carolyn here. Just wanted to put my two cents in with regards to the discussion that you had on your show this morning about blind versus vision impaired, etc. When I was a partial well, when I had vision, and in my day, of course, we were called partially sighted. What I discovered was a lot of people didn't understand the term partially sighted. One of the most common questions you would get from people, and I got it through childhood and through my early adulthood, was, are you short-sighted or long-sighted? And when you went neither they didn't quite understand what you were talking about. So I changed the terminology and I used partially blind. I figured that if people could use partially deaf and people understood, maybe they would understand a bit better if I said partially blind. And so that was the terminology that I used to use. I never minded vision impairment. I don't get hung up on the words. However, when I lost my eyesight in 2011, due to multiple complications, it's left me with light perception and being able to see some colours, but no details. Now, the vision is useful 
in the fact that I can gauge where the windows are, for example, in a room. But other than that, I can't see any other detail in a room. And it's nice to be able to see some really bright colours. However, I would not describe myself as vision impaired because technically that vision is not useful in the sense that the rest of society would see it being as useful. I do everything else as a blind person. I read Braille, I use speech. So I use all the skills and the abilities that a totally blind person would use to navigate my world and technology, etc. So that is why, even though I have some vision, but not useful vision, I would classify myself as blind. And it's a very strange position to be in because when you tell people you're blind they automatically think that everything's black and that's it but it's not and it's different for each individual and that's one of the things I really enjoy explaining to customers when I've been working at Dananoir the Dining in the Dark restaurant here in Auckland, and we've had conversations around the table. And I've said to them that what you're experiencing in this room, where it is pitch black, is not the experience of every blind person. Their world is not necessarily pitch black. For some people, it's black and white. For some people, it's flashes of colour. And for others, it is black. And one really good way I can explain it to them is that one of my colleagues was sighted and he had a car accident. And he went from being sighted to being totally blind overnight. And I explained to them that he tells his customers what they're experiencing right now is his reality every single day. But it's not the reality for all of us, and I explain my situation. Dan Tebelt says, Hi, Jonathan. I've enjoyed the recent discussion about Braille displays. I have been using them for the past 30 years and can say I've seen it all. My first display was a 20-cell navigator, which didn't have cursor routing buttons and emitted a very loud beep when I linked or unlinked the cursor from the Braille display navigation keys. There was no way to turn the tone off. I have had displays from Pappenmeyer, Baum, Blazy, Freedom Scientific, and Hymns. Each display had unique features. Based on my experience with the Packmate, I don't think specialized note-takers are a good option. The Packmate was bulky, and the process of attaching and detaching the Braille display was cumbersome. I now have a Hymns Braille Edge and a Focus 5. The Hymns display is definitely more of a hybrid device than the Focus. The Focus only supports reading Braille or text files. There is no support for Braille translation or reading files in other formats, like Microsoft Word. I think the products which have the best chance of survival are the Focus, QBraille, and the Mantis. 
I wish the Focus supported displaying Braille when the user puts the device in mass storage mode to copy files. The process of switching between screen reader and mass storage mode is cumbersome. I don't think the L Braille, Braille Note Touch Plus, or Polaris are good options. It will be hard to keep these devices current. The Braille user already has good options using a display with Windows, iOS, and to a lesser extent, Android devices. Thank you very much for sharing your experiences, Dan. My comment on that would be, I do wonder whether the L Braille might be the odd one out in your list there, because the L Braille is running full Windows 10. It's a standard computer, and so it should last quite a long time. One of the problems with Android, of course, is that these note-taker products commit to an early version of Android, and Android is notoriously and historically difficult to upgrade. There are initiatives like Project Treble that are trying to improve that. But right now, I mean, the current Braille could be running the very latest version of Windows 10 that was released in May. And although I haven't used the new Braille, it looks like the specs are quite good. So if you want an all-in-one device, it seems to me the Braille might be worth a look because you've got full jaws without compromises. I mean, I could potentially produce this podcast on an Braille. Ahead of our next email, if we were a music show, we could play Kylie Minogue or something. I should be so lucky, lucky. Or there's a whole lot of songs about luck, actually, because Rebecca Skipper says, First, while I was catching up on your latest podcast Saturday evening, I got an email from a member of a mailing list I subscribe to saying that I won a Focus 14 Blue. Dude, it just goes to show that listening to the podcast means that good luck will come your way while you listen. She says, I registered for and attended the Freedom Scientific Virtual Exhibit Hall for NFB. This is the first time I've won a prize like this, so I'm excited. Well done. Now this will give me a chance to compare two great displays. I have the Focus 40 Classic, the one with the whiz wheels, and an Orbit Reader 20. I love both devices. Yes, the Orbit Reader is noisier than the Focus, but it is well built. I like the signage quality Braille, and you can pair it to multiple devices just like you can with the Focus. The Focus Braille is softer than the Orbit Reader 20, and I think the type of Braille is very important. Well, don't forget, Rebecca, you can adjust the dot quality of the Focus. You can do it in JAWS with the older Braille displays, and with the fifth generation You can actually do it from within the firmware so that if you don't use JAWS, you can still adjust the dot firmness. So you can sort of have cheese grater firmness or more sort of spongy feeling. She says, I like using the Orbit Reader 20 for taking personal notes, but it is not ideal as a display to me because of its size. The constant display refresh noise when using JAWS takes some getting used to, Yeah, for you and people around you, I would imagine. And I like the Quieter Focus 44, my full-time display at the moment. However, I am very interested in both the Focus 40 5th generation and the Orbit Reader 40. The Orbit Reader 40 is significantly cheaper than the Focus 40 and has similar features. But the keyboard commands for the Focus 14 Blue seem intuitive, and I presume that these commands should work with the Focus 40 as well. Yes, they will. I am leaning more towards the Orbit Reader 40 at the moment, but once I try the Focus 14 in a few weeks, I might have a different view. 
Hello, Jonathan. This is Howard in Connecticut. I've been thinking about your comments about reversing the functions of the panning buttons on a Braille display. It seems to me that that would depend on which hand you use to read Braille with. If you read with your right hand, then I think reversing the buttons would make sense. So you would have your left hand free to hit the button <laughs> as you're reading. But if you're reading with your left hand, then I would think that the normal configuration would make sense. So now I'm curious, which hand do you read Braille with? Or do you use both hands? And how do other listeners read Braille? Uh, I uh, actually read Braille primarily with my left hand and sometimes with a little help from my right. But as I say, I'm primarily a left-handed Braille reader. And therefore, I think the normal uh, configuration of the panning buttons makes sense. Good to hear from you, Howard. I guess I am slightly more dominant with my right hand reading Braille than my left, but I do read Braille with both hands. So sometimes when I think about it, and I had to really think before answering this question, because Braille reading is just so intuitive to me now. I've been doing it for sort of 45 years or whatever. But what I am doing is reading different bits of the line at the same time with both hands. But I think my right hand is a little more dominant. So, yes, I think that's a valid point. Hello, Jonathan. This is Jason from Virginia again. wanted to first thank you for playing my message last week regarding becoming a new Braille display user. The information you gave was very helpful. Gave me a lot of things to consider. I have um, since done some more research on the Mantis Q40, and it definitely does seem like something I would like to uh, end up getting, but there are a few bugs with regards to connectivity and that sort of thing, so I do think I want to wait for those to get worked out, and um, hopefully they will. I don't want to buy something with the anticipation that any existing issues will be fixed, so I'd rather wait till they are. Uh, in the meantime, I was considering getting the Focus 14 uh, because of the large discount that I was talking about last week that ends at the end of this month. I have talked to some people who feel that the 14 cells is just not enough to be of much use. I would be curious to hear from anybody how they feel about that, if you know it would make sense to get a 14 cell or if that just is so little real estate that you really are not able to be very productive with something like that. Um, also, I did have somebody contact me stating that they've had a lot of hardware issues with the fifth generation focus. So I'd be interested to also know if anybody has had any problems like that as well. Uh, if I am missing out on a, another display that I should be looking at within the $1,000 or less range, that would be great. Uh, as I said, this this is severely discounted, so that's kind of the reason I'm interested in it at this point. And my thought is that it would also give me some time to get familiar again with Braille and get used to it be before I hopefully move to the Mantis. More on Braille displays from Ian Lackey. When I was at school many years ago, we were taught to read Braille with both hands. Even on my 14-cell display, I use both hands. As I write... I am hearing someone say that 14 cells is not enough. 
I used to think this and have been pleasantly surprised. As I said last week, 14 cells has proved to be amazingly adequate for me. Recently, one of the thumb keys on my Brilliant stopped working. Humanware had the display picked up, fixed and returned to me within three days. I was impressed. Thank you, Ian. That's what I call service. Laurel Jean says, I too do a lot of reading in public venues using my HandyTech Active Braille. I've owned this display since 2011 and it continues to serve me well. My reading style is similar to my method of reading on paper, bringing my left index finger back to the beginning of the line as my right index continues to the end of the line. While I do not care for automatic scrolling, I do take advantage of the HandyTech ATC technology, which advances the display when one's finger reaches the end of the cell line. I'd like to have a good play with that, actually. That does sound really cool. Before the active Braille, I owned a Braille Light 40 and also used it quite comfortably for public speaking, worship services and even congregational singing in church. At this point, I would not go back to reading from hard copy paper unless I had no other choice. Before the Mantis Q40 came along, I wouldn't have thought of owning another Braille display. Now I'm curious to know how quiet the Mantis is, especially when one is reading from it. Also, I understand that the batteries are user-replaceable, but I have not been able to find out what type of battery the Mantis takes. Maybe someone can tell us, Laurel, because we've got a few people lurking about who a Mantis uses. I really appreciate the quiet display and user-replaceable batteries on the active Braille. On the subject of speech, I currently have Alex, Samantha, Eloquence and eSpeak running on various devices and applications. Y'all can go ahead and laugh, but I'd give them all up for Perfect Bowl from those deck talk days. I wouldn't laugh at that. I'd like Perfect Pool as well, Laura. Plenty more comments on text-to-speech engines this week, so let's start off with Christopher Wright. Yes, let's start the right way. He says, hello, Jonathan. My favourite TTS voices are Ivona Sally. Is that how she's spelled? S-A-L-L-I he's got here. Neo Speech Kate, Mac Alex, some of the Mac novelty voices, such as Pipe Organ, and Nuance Vocalizer Ava. I also prefer using eSpeak over Eloquence, though I can only tolerate the variants that come with NVDA as they provide more inflection. I will never understand the obsession with Eloquence. My word, Christopher, you love the emotive terms, don't you? I don't think there's any obsession with eloquence. I think that there are just many who really find they can be the most productive and efficient with it. I have a quick question regarding Chrome OS. Are there any other voices available for ChromeVox aside from the United States Google TTS voice? That voice is awful. It's worse than eloquence or eSpeak. I know not, but let's see if anyone has any answers for you, Christopher. Thanks for writing in. Here's Lynette in New York. Hi, Jonathan. Just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy listening to your show each week. You provide a wealth, a wealth of information as well as humor, and it is greatly appreciated, especially in these uncertain times. Thank you so much, Lynette. I appreciate that. Like Pam Quinn, she continues... My favorite synthesizer is and will always be eloquence. Oh, no, you're obsessed. 
Christopher says so. You're obsessed, Lynette, I tell you. I'm used to the voice pitch, and it keeps up with my typing speed. I've tried others, but always return. Having used eloquence for so long, I don't have to think, and my thoughts simply merrily flow along. Anyway, keep up the great podcast and everything else you're doing to advance the community of persons with vision impairments. Ah, and I've been using JAWS since its inception so many years ago. Eric Damry came to what was then the Lighthouse here in New York City, and I was simply amazed at this new speech synthesizer. I learned it and then went on to instruct students in its use for many years. Regards to Bonnie, and do take care out there. Thank you so much, Lynette, and to you as well. Well, hello, Jonathan. This is Andy Rebscher, and I'm here to extol the virtues of the Blazy Note Taker. Mine was a Braille and speak. It was a PDA before any of my friends had a PDA, even before many of them had any sort of PC or a Mac or any kind of computer at all. I had a Braille and speak. The thing was a note taker and a calculator. It started out that way and uh, ended up with a fair number of programs that you could use for things. I used the checkbook program to keep my checking account. And the macros function on it was absolutely cool. You could write macros to do anything. I was a broadcast engineer, and I would take transmitter readings and fill them in, and then I'd hit a macro, and it would calculate my transmitter efficiency. And one last thing about it, it was fun. When my kid was four or five years old, I would amuse him with it by making it say stuff, and he liked that. And the speech had two notes. The guy would talk along at one pitch and keep on going until he got to the end of the sentence, and then his voice would go down on the last word. He could make it say, Thomas is a bad boy, by uh, putting a gazillion A's in the word bad. And if you wrote Thomas is a good boy and you tried to do it, it would it would articulate all those O's, so it would say, Thomas is a good boy. Which I'm sure you always were writing in, weren't you? I presume Thomas is the name of your son. Thanks, Andy. That was really interesting because you raise something which we often, I don't think, take sufficient pride in. We had a phase a few years ago, which in my view was a really contemptible, regrettable phase, where you had people describing blindness-specific products as ghetto products. Now, I do think that it's important that mainstream technology be accessible. And because our market size is so small, products designed specifically for us are going to be more expensive. So it's a fair question to ask, have we reached a point with any blindness-specific products where a mainstream product will do the same thing, possibly as well or even better? And often there'll be no definitive answer to that question. Some people will believe that a mainstream solution meets their needs and others will not. The discussion that we've had on this podcast regarding note-takers versus standalone Braille displays with a laptop or a mobile device is a case in point. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just a range of perspectives. Similarly, 
The Victor Reader Stream is a case in point. I have never owned a stream, and yet when I look at our podcast statistics, 27, nearly 28% of people who listen to Mosin at Large are listening with a Victor Reader Stream. That makes it the most popular, the single most popular client of all in terms of people listening. More people listen with the Victor Reader Stream than do any other app, although if you added all of the podcast apps together for iOS, you would find actually that the vast majority are using iOS. But still, it's an interesting stat to note that the Victorita stream is still the single most popular client. But we are a market. We're a unique market and we have unique needs. And let's not forget that some of these blindness products have been the precursor to products that have gone mainstream. So these so-called ghetto products have actually led the way and made a difference worldwide. You are absolutely right. When we look at the Braille and Speak or those Keynotes products, we were using note-taker type devices, PDAs, if you will, before sighted people in general had PDAs. You look at the original Kurzweil reading machine, And we were using scanners, if you could afford them, if you could find one at a library, before they were in offices. Now, there are scanning devices on many desks in many offices. You look at the long-playing record, which was designed originally for talking books for blind people. There are numerous examples. I mean, talking books themselves. Now people are subscribing en masse to Audible and things like that. But talking books were originally designed for reading to the blind. So rather than using derogatory terms that denigrate people for perfectly legitimate choice, I think that this is a matter of blind pride. And as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, I think it's particularly worth pointing out what this shows is that accessibility benefits everyone. Technology pioneers who have given the blind community so much have actually inspired the world to create a wide range of products and services. To me, that is a justifiable source of blind pride. So I always push back on the blind ghetto thing. I think it's a nonsensical term, and I also think it insults the people who make the choices that they have every right to make, and it insults the people who have contributed so much to making lives better for blind people. As for the Braille and Speak itself, man, that speech was hard to take. I remember getting a Braille light, New Zealand being... And New Zealand, of course, the keynote was manufactured here. So many of us were weaned, weaned on Keysoft. But I did get a Braille light in the late 1990s or the mid-1990s. And that's when I first encountered that Braille and speak speech. That was indeed challenging, that speech. But it does go to show you can get used to anything. Sean Thiel here. And I just want to talk a little bit about text-to-speech engines. Yes, I do like eloquence and JAWS. You can still get... Things like Real Speak, Jennifer, actually Vocalizer Direct, Jennifer and Jill are still up there and you can still install those. And uh, you do have to go into the synthesizer and Braille Manager and add the Vocalizer Direct driver after installing those voices, but they are there. For iOS, I use Alex and Fred. Um, I don't like audio ducking very much, especially in JAWS. So... Alex, I'll tend to use with things if I want it to be louder than like a video or music that I'm listening to. The South African female Siri voice is also loud and easy to hear, even if you've got things going on. 
Conversely, Fred is going to be quieter than a phone call I might be on if I need to hear the numbers on the keypad or listen to my calendar and things like that. So I uh, find that that's helpful there to be able to do that. You know, he's easier to hear. And he's also easier for for people to um, around you to tune out. <laughs> so that can be handy depending on what's going on. Some of the more natural voices, sometimes you get people hearing them that you might not want hearing your business and you haven't thought to put in headphones because you thought you were only going to be using your phone for two seconds. For Voice Dream Reader, I have found that the Ivono voices have a very unique feature that let you pause between sentences and paragraphs and adjust how much pause between those. And um, if you're reading really complex material, um, I found this when I was reading Bookshare's uh, The Anxiety and Phobia Workbook. I was realizing that um, it wasn't giving me time to think about some of the ideas and I didn't want to have to keep pausing and rewinding and so on. And so now Sally is kind of my, I need to pay attention to this nonfiction voice. And uh, then other voices I can have with less pause if I'm wanting to read fiction or whatever. Karen Ashland is in touch on the email. She says, I've used a lot of text to speech programs in my almost 73 years. I absolutely hated the vote tracks but all of the others were fine. Now, that was an interesting text-to-speech engine, wasn't it? Because if I'm remembering correctly, it was that one, the Votrax, that would bleep when you threw certain naughty words at it because it didn't want to corrupt the tender ears of the blind. So if you said something, it would go bleep. It literally would say, I think it would say the word bleep, if I remember. Yeah. I Hopefully it would have done that if you threw the word soup at it. I do hope so. Carol continues, I do not think the ADA has been as successful as I would wish. I've bought stereos, a heat pump, and a washer and dryer that were all difficult to use. I had to buy a new stove, and it is pretty accessible once I made labels for all the buttons. Thank you, Carol. I tell you what, appliances are the next frontier, are they not? And I remember all the way back to the 90s and the early part of this century when I was doing main menu for ACB Radio and we'd have these brilliant people like Greg Vanderheiden on from the University of Wisconsin, uh, the Trace Research Center there. And he was talking about some sort of conduit, some way to control appliances. And I suppose our smartphones are potentially that way, but it's still pretty hard to find a lot of washers and dryers and dishwashers and some of those things that are controllable that way. Hi, Jonathan. This is Herbie from Houston, where we are dealing with everything from extreme heat at times to COVID to tropical storms. But enough on depressing subjects. I want to talk about the big discussion on last week's podcast regarding screen reading voices. Now, I'm going to actually go against the mold a little bit. I grew up around various computers and talking products for the blind back in the day, starting with the Echo device and for computers, you know, back in the late 80s. Also, you know, another big one for me, which I used for a few years, was the Braille and Speak. When I got my own computer much later on, it was Deck Talk, then Eloquence, which I actually did like Deck Talk slightly better, but Eloquence 
definitely did have better pronunciation. And in regards to the computer, at least, you know, Eloquence is what I used for a number of years until 2014 when Freedom Scientific finally made some improvements. I think it was like the Solo Direct Voices. That's what it was called at the time. I think they're called something else now. But they had introduced, of course, Sappy 5 going back to 2007, but that was never responsive the way Eloquence was, so I never gravitated towards them. But I was really happy that I can now actually effectively use the Australian Karen voice with JAWS, which was the same as what I used on my iPhone at the time. Since that time, I've upgraded to the American Siri female voice for my iOS devices and Mac, and I like her the best out of all the voices because, in my opinion, she is by far the most natural-sounding, both in terms of expressiveness and quality. I guess it was just, even back in the day when it was a thing, I was never a major Eloquence fan. It was always too robotic for my liking. It was just not my most favorite in terms of quality either. Yes, it was responsive totally, and I do understand why people like it for that, but um, I don't know. I do like the more natural-sounding voices that really try to sound like humans. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Charlie is in South Africa and he has listened to episode 41 of Mosin at Large in which we set up the Sonos Arc. I tell you what, everything runs a lot more smoothly now that we have this super-duper ubiquity network. And as we put this podcast together, the ubiquity gear was purchased 43 days ago and it has been up for... You guessed it, 43 days. That Ubiquiti gear is rock solid. And man, the Sonos stuff is performing really well. So that would have significantly eased the setup of the Sonos arc that you heard in episode 41. He also says, I just want you to tell me how you made your home into a Mosin house or otherwise known as a smart home. Was it relatively easy? Did you do it all at once? Or did you have to buy the equipment one by one over time. Do you have to be relatively rich in order to do this? What kind of budget do you have to look like in order to put it all together to getting a smart home? I'm asking this because whenever the time comes, I would love to build myself a smart home, but I am just too afraid that it's going to cost me too much money. And my last question, how do you know when you've completed your smart home, what is the last screw on the coffin? See, that's a very apt analogy charlie i think the the last screw on the coffin will be (laughs) the completion of your smart home because you won't be adding to it after that i think smart homes are a constant work in progress i guess it's kind of a nondescript term smart home isn't it when did i start building a smart home i guess it depends on your definition i do remember in the 1990s when i started listening to streaming media and in those days the audio quality was pretty bad that my then-wife crawled under our house that we were living in, threading a cable. So we had the computer, my computer, in my little spare bedroom that was an office, but we had our stereo system in the living room. And this was before Wi-Fi and all those good things. So she went under the house with this cable and threaded a very long cable that had a 3.5-millimeter jack at one end that plugged into the computer, and two RCAs at the other end, 
that was going to plug into the amp with our hi-fi system in the living room. And she threaded that cable all the way into the house, and then she plugged it in so that I could put something on with streaming media on the PC, and it would play beautifully through the stereo system. And I mean, we thought that was amazing. That probably was a smart home initiative. Later on, we bought an FM transmitter, a little low-power FM transmitter for internal use, and we could then listen to what was playing on our computer on any radio. And in my early days of ACB radio, we really used to promote that sort of technology because people could then just listen to it on their regular radio without being tethered to the PC. So smart homes are whatever you choose them to be. In more recent times, we've done things a little bit at a time. So one of the big initiatives that we took was to replace all of our bulbs in the house, light bulbs, with Philips Hue light bulbs. And these can be controlled with your soup drinker, with Siri, or with Google Home. And what I really like about controlling them with Siri is that you can ask where the lights are on in any given room. I can say, are the studio lights on or are the living room lights on? And Siri would actually tell me whether they're on or off. We can say, turn off all the lights and turn on the lights in the bedroom and that sort of thing. And that works everywhere, as I say, with Google Home, with Siri, and with the soup drinker. So that's pretty cool. You can dim the lights if you understand lighting enough to know when and how much to do that by. And if you spring for the more expensive Philips Hue bulbs, you can actually make the lights change color. My kids love bringing friends home to say, look how cool our smart home is. And they say, you know, change the light to some sort of funky color. And the lights change and everybody goes, whoa. (laughs) So the kids think that's cool. I would also classify Sonos as a smart home product. So we have Sonos in pretty much every room in which we have people living and doing things. And we have the Sonos app. It's also connected to our range of Amazon Echo compatible devices. So we can talk to the Sonoses everywhere. And with newer Sonoses being AirPlay capable, we can also work with it with Siri as well. And yep, they work with Google Home as well. So Sonos plays a big part in our smart home. We also have smart outlets, which allows us to control things like the crock pot. So it still gives Bonnie a bit of a thrill to be able to say to Siri at 11 a.m., turn on the crock pot and it goes click at home and off it goes. It turns on the crock pot. So smart outlets are a pretty low cost way to make a smart home as well. We also purchased a video doorbell and a security system that can be controlled from a smartphone app. So we can disarm the alarm when we know somebody's at the door that we want to let in, like a repairman or something like that if we're out. And we can talk to them via the video doorbell. So if someone comes to the front door and we're at work and the doorbell rings, we can answer on the iPhone, talk to them. If we know who they are, we can obviously let them in, disarm the alarm, that kind of thing. So you can have smart locks as well. And all of our heating is controllable via Google Home and Amazon Echo compatible devices. We were actually able to retrofit the three Mitsubishi heat pumps that we have at Mosin Towers with a module that will allow us to control via a smartphone app on the iPhone. But it is not sadly HomeKit compatible, but it's relatively usable uh, with a smartphone. But you can give voice commands with the soup drinker or Google Assistant. Where this really comes in handy, of course, is that 
you can set up routines to do different things. We tend to get up at 5 a.m. And so particularly at this time of the year when it's winter, at 4.30 a.m., I have a soup drinker routine that comes on and it turns the heat on to a certain temperature. So by the time our alarms go off at 5, the chill has been taken off the house and it's much more pleasant to get up. You can also, of course, add lighting and different other things. We can have the TV now, which is also a smart TV. So the TV can be placed on a particular channel. We can have the Sonos play a particular radio station. And all those things can happen at once with a routine at a particular time. We have to mix and match because, unfortunately, not everything is compatible with all of the three major home automation platforms, Google Assistant, the soup drinker, and Siri. And so sometimes I'll just have to choose the system that works best. For example, the heat is not compatible with Apple HomeKit, so we use a soup drinker routine to get that going in the morning. And I also have, by the way, with the heat, a series of routines that are activatable by a command. So, for example, let me just wind this up here in the mixer. I can say, soup drinker, heat the upstairs. Turning on the heat in the hallway and the living room. Right. And so then if I want to heat the entire house, I can say soup drinker, heat the house. The heat is on. There we go. And that's turned on all the heat. Now I can say things like soup drinker. What's the hallway heat pump set to? The heat set to 22. Now I'm going to switch it all off so I can say soup drinker. Stop heating the house. All heat pumps are off. All very cool. So I have those routines and I have programmed in those routines. You can also specify specific devices. So I can say turn on studio heat pump or turn on living room heat pump and work with the devices one at a time. So in that sense, because we are never fire away, we are always within shouting distance of a soup drinker here. We literally can talk to it from anywhere in our quite large house because we are strewn, strewn with Soup Drinker compatible devices. In the case of turning on a particular radio show that we listen to in the morning, then I will use Apple HomeKit for that because now all of our key Sonos devices are AirPlay compatible. So the routine that we have that comes on at 6.15 every morning groups all of the rooms together where we want to hear this radio show, sets it to a preset volume, and then switches it on. And that is really cool. So we use whatever technology, whatever platform works for us in any given situation. And I don't think that this is ever over. We will continue to add things. We don't have smart blinds, for example. Well, Bonnie's a pretty smart blind, actually. <laughs> She's a pretty smart blind. But we don't we don't have the smart blinds here yet. I'd like to get that done in curtains and that sort of stuff. So we'll keep adding over time. And that's the really nice thing. It's a project that you can be committed to for life. Just add things. Whenever it's time to replace something in your house, think about, can I automate this thing? Would there be any value in me being able to talk to something to get it controlled. And your smart home will just evolve as your budget and time permits. I would be very interested to hear other people's experiences with building their smart home, what you are using, anything like that you'd like to share about the joys, the trials, the tribulations of building a smart home.
Brian Borowski writes, I am a blind person and don't have a problem telling people that this is so. You are right that people need to accept what we are, the limitations, and move forward. I don't like changing the word. We need to do as much as we can to change people's perceptions of blindness. For many, this can be done, but we know that there are those who seem to be unable to change their opinion, and we have to be able to tolerate some level of discrimination for our survival. It should be kept in mind that even into the 30s in the United States, in many states, blind people were not permitted to own property. Morris Frank sold insurance in such a time. Pertaining to the matter of the smart home, it is what you make of it. We started using X10 in the 90s with some of the basic controller devices, and we had a box from Radio Shack that allowed you to control the modules from a computer. Gee, I had forgotten all about X10. That was pretty amazing, and I do know of somebody who took their whole house apart and did internal wiring to make X10 really sing. That's amazing. Uh, Brian continues, you had to write the code and it was communicated with at 600 board 7E or something odd like that. A bit unusual. The stuff for a smart home is generally expensive when compared to non-smart stuff, outlets and light switches, if you use them, about $20, bulbs similar, speakers from $30 when Echo Dot is on sale, to many hundreds of dollars. And, as you pointed out, it is a work in progress, and that spreads out the expense. I like and use my Orbit 20 reader for reading books. It works well, though I just had to get a Braille display replacement for it. That's what they recommended, because four dots locked in various positions. Three were in dots seven and eight row, but it was when the dot three in cell eight got stuck up and I had to do a lot of error correction while reading and something had to be done about that. The cost was about $400 for the display replacement. 20 cells is a bit small, but it seems that I can read fast with that size. 40 is very nice. My 80 cell used at work in my programming and other efforts is a lot of movement if you're trying to read a book. My BI32, which isn't made anymore, provides a nice reading experience. Leo has sent an email which says, Hello, Jonathan, I so enjoy your informative podcasts. Keep them coming. Thank you so much. For several years, I have been using my Mac and have been very productive with it. But from time to time, I have considered looking at running Windows as well. My renewed interest comes from two considerations. First, I am on several committees at our church where Excel files on budgets are shared, and I want a quick way to read these. I have been asked to prepare some PowerPoint presentations as we do more information via Zoom. The second reason is my growing curiosity to check out Narrator and where things stand on the Windows side of things. Would appreciate your suggestions slash guidance on what to do to set up the Windows side of things on my Mac, software considerations and keyboards. Yes, make hay while the sun shines, Leo, because when they switch to Apple Silicon on the Mac, you won't be able to do this. Broadly speaking, you have two choices, boot camp the machine or run a virtual machine using VMware Fusion. You can run a virtual machine from the boot camp partition, but when I was a Mac user, that is something that I haven't tried. So if someone has done that, 
maybe they can comment on the benefits or otherwise of doing so. I think the easiest way would be to boot camp if you have the hard drive space. So you would create a boot camp partition using boot camp assistant, and it's pretty easy to decide how much space on my hard drive will I allocate to Windows. You would, of course, also need a copy of the Windows 10 operating system. So there's a bit of setup involved, but I don't think that's necessarily particularly accessibility specific. You can find many guides on the web about how to bootcamp your Mac, and they will take you through step by step. You should be able to get to a point where you can press Control Windows Enter and start Narrator to talk you through the Windows setup process. So at points in the process, VoiceOver should be able to talk you through. And then when Windows actually boots, you should be able to complete the process okay with Narrator these days. Bear in mind, it's been a long time now, probably five or six years since I boot camped a Mac. And I would imagine things have moved along in a positive direction since I last did. So others may be able to chime in for you. From memory, I believe the way it works is that the command key on a Mac becomes the Windows key and the option key becomes the alt key. Control key continues to be the control key. If you want, you could get a Windows keyboard and plug it into a USB port or pair it with Bluetooth and use it as a regular Windows key. But many Mac users I know get quite used to just having the start menu key next to the space bar. It's not really a showstopper. With VMware Fusion, one of the big advantages of going that way with a virtual machine is that you can just command tab between operating systems. There was a set of utilities that I used to use back when I was a Mac user called Carabiner and Sale, I think they were called. And they would allow me to use the caps lock key as my JAWS key. So it would work as the VO key when it was in Mac OS. And then it would act as the JAWS key when I was in Windows. So it was really slick. And then when I think it was our Capitan came along, which is when I was about to bail out of the Mac, those utilities stopped working. So I don't know whether they're back in circulation now. If they are not, a lot of people use a tool called Sharp Keys which can map a key to any other key. It's a Windows utility, and a lot of people use the Grave Accent key as their JAWS key, so you can do that as well. As for how Narrator is doing, I must say I think Narrator is doing quite well. For me, this latest version of Windows, the May 2020 update, is the tipping point where I really feel that Narrator is now viable. I think it's a pretty nice experience in Microsoft Outlook. It will work just fine by the sounds of it for the use cases that you want working in Office applications because Microsoft's done a lot of work with UI automation and exposed a lot of information to screen readers in a pretty consistent way. Of course, if you buy yourself, if you don't have it already, a Microsoft Office 365 subscription, the advantage there is that you can install the Mac versions of those apps on the Mac side, the Windows version on the Windows side, and the mobile version on the iOS side, if you have an iPhone. And it's all done with one subscription. So Microsoft Office 365 is exceptional value for money. Plus, you get a few other goodies, like a terabyte of OneDrive storage and some Skype credit as well, I think. So that's a broad overview, and maybe others can chime in on their experiences of working in 2020 with a boot-camped Mac or a Mac running VMware Fusion. Mm -hmm. 
years that I've pointed out to people that it is strange to me that some blind people, and it's specifically in the United States, I have never seen this from any other country, confuse the words since and since. I have never had anyone attempt to make an explanation, except now that drought is over, because here is Mary Ward, and Mary says, you mentioned the confusion between the words since and since among some American blind writers. There are linguistic reasons for this error. These people are probably Southerners, and they probably also say y'all. In dialects of English spoken in the Southern United States, the words pen and pen are homophones, that is, they are pronounced the same. Interesting. I mean, I live with someone from there. Um, Some linguists have claimed that this merger of sounds only applies to those two words, but it seems to apply also to sense and since as well. I decided to see how my two most frequently used speech synthesizers handled this problem. I wrote out the incorrect and untrue sentence, I have had no sense of smell since I got COVID-19. When I read by word... Both Eloquence and the iPhone Samantha Voice read these words as distinct from one another. But when I read the sentence at normal speed, I cannot hear the difference and don't detect the error. Incidentally, when I write the words pin and pen in different contexts, I can also hear the difference with either synthesizer. I guess I am stuck in the middle between merging and non-merging. Have a linguistically interesting day. Thank you, Mary. This is interesting. So I'm going to fire up eloquence here, and I'm going to read that sentence at a sort of moderate speed. Now, I can immediately hear that that's an error. I mean, this I'm, I'm reading with eloquence when I hear people making this error, and I can immediately pick it up when they're saying since instead of since. And... It jumps out at me. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And I can really hear that. So I'm not sure why others can't hear it as well. But I really appreciate the explanation. And in Ireland, Floor Lynch has noticed this too. And he's writing in, commenting on other words that he's seen quite a few blind Americans confusing. And they include serious XM instead of serious XM. So they are quite similar. I think Mary's probably hit to the nail on the head. Actually, now that I think about it, I have also seen people spelling limon, like L-I-M-O-N instead of L-E-M-O-N. So I think this is it. So now that we've identified what is causing it, I do have a constructive suggestion. It would be great if Microsoft and those people who make spelling and grammar checkers, but particularly Microsoft, where quite often, for example, if somebody writes T-H-E-I-R when they mean T-H-E-R-E, the grammar checker will often pick up on that in Word, and it will say, oi, we think you might be using the wrong word here, just check this out, and gives you the chance to change it. So now that we know what the cause is, maybe we should encourage Microsoft to say, look, because there are blind people using text-to-speech, they are not hearing the difference between words like sense and since, and a spell checker isn't going to pick it up because... A spell checker, you know, the words sense and sense are both correct spellings. It's just the wrong word to use. Could you add this to your grammar checker so that if you have something like 
I have not seen this since I was a kid. Immediately, the grammar checker should be able to go ping and say, actually, you mean since. And that would help people out, I think. Assuming, of course, they choose to use the grammar checker. Hi, Jonathan. It's Tiffany Milburn. I'm listening to episode 51 of the Mosin at Large podcast. And I wanted to comment on the speech synthesizers and braille displays. So hope I'm not too late for this one. So as for Braille displays, I have right now the 32-cell Braille Note Apex. I got, it was given to me when I graduated high school a few years ago, and I've used one. I've used the Empower, and I've used the Apex. I really love the displays from Humanware, the thumb keys, the texture of the Braille. Um, If I ever do buy a Braille display myself, though, that I'm spending the money on, I would personally probably go for a smaller display. Because of the kind of work I do, I'm not using it for work, but I like to take it to go with me sometimes. And my 32-cell note taker is, it's portable. I mean, it's doable, but it is a little bit bulky. As for um, screen readers, I like the voices on the iPhone. I don't know what the name of the speech engine is. I use the Siri female voice. And then since I'm working on a German course, for that I use the German Siri voice. I really like the sound of that. I can crank it up and understand it. I never really got on with eloquence. Um, Something about the, I don't know what it was, but I'm not too crazy about it. And I use a narrator on the PC. And I've heard you can change the synthesizers and change the voice. And that's something I'm curious to try, but I haven't played with yet. Hi, Jonathan. This is Terry Hedgepeth in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, uh, Braille displays. I have tried a number of Braille displays. The Brilliant, the uh, Hymns, what was that one called? Before the Q Braille, and a few others. But I have to say that my absolute favorite is the Focus 5th Generation Braille display. It really is, to me, a home run. And one of the biggest things that I like about it is that it stays connected with JAWS, whereas all of the others, I had constant issues with if there was an update that came to JAWS or other things, I would often lose focus or it would just lose its connectivity altogether. And I'd have to go back in and diddle around with it until I got got it reconnected, and it wasn't always straightforward. So uh, that's why one of the biggest reasons that I just love the Focus Biz Gen, the 40 cell. As far as speech, you know, I find that I use Tom Enhanced on the phone probably because of the way it pronounces things, and its sound is somewhat similar to eloquence for me. I also find that I use regular Tom in JAWS, but not the Tom Enhanced, because I agree with you in that. The enhanced voices aren't quite, they're just different. It's important to me that a speech or a voice should be able to pronounce international names most accurately. And I find that so many of these others don't do that at all. Uh, and the Alex, I'm so done with Alex after the, I tried it for 20 minutes. That's about it. Mm. No thanks. 
uh, you and Bonnie were talking about what professionals deem appropriate for blind children and blind babies. It brings to mind that in 1959, I was diagnosed with retinal blastoma, and my parents lived in Houston, Texas. And MD Anderson Hospital at that time was one of the pivotal hospitals or whatever that was doing research in that uh, eye disease. So when they made the determination that my eyes would need to be enucleated, the amazing surgeon took my mom to the children's ward and he showed her, here are, you know, I don't remember how many there were, but there were several small children between one and six years old in hospital cribs. And he said, none of these children can walk because their parents refuse to let them walk since they are blind. They're afraid they might hurt themselves. So they have never learned how to walk. Please don't do that. So, I mean, what an insightful doc. And especially when you consider the time period of 1959. So I was very fortunate. He basically set the stage of expectation at that point. Terry, you raise a fascinating discussion point, I think, and that is that so much of our lives are the lack of the biological draw, right? And if you went to a school for the blind or you in any way had any kind of contact with other blind kids, you will know of blind kids who were mollycoddled with the best of intentions, but parents really did get it wrong and turned out very dependent blind people lacking in self-assurance and blindness skills because they did so much for the blind child. And I believe that one of the most critical things that must happen for the parents of a blind child is that they are put in touch as soon as possible with adult blind role models. I cannot tell you the damage that I have seen done to the lives of blind children by the mumbo-jumbo, gobbledygook and psycho-speak that is given to parents of blind children by sighted professionals who think that raising blind kids needs to be so hard. Get those parents in front of blind adults as soon as possible. Francisco Crespo says, I had to give the discussion here in Buenos Aires regarding remote exam proctoring. Let me tell you about the research that I did to have an argument with my university. They wanted to use a platform called Respondus Lockdown. Basically, this is a browser that blocks any other windows in your computer. The software documentation even says that if you lose your connection to the internet, you have to force a computer shutdown in order to get it back to work. I found that there were reports with security issues with the software. Also, the company behind its development is not well known, so we don't know who is accessing our computer. As a group of students, including me, completely refused to use this software, I started to find new alternatives that the university could implement. I didn't want them to think that we were willing to cheat in our exams and did not want them to be proctored. So I did a quick internet search to see what Harvard and Stanford are doing about this. I found that in the case of Harvard, they are doing proctoring via video conferencing, 
just what the Association of Accessibility Professionals offered to do. But I got shocked when I found that Stanford prohibits proctoring even during presential exams unless there is clear suspect of possible cheating. This long-standing rule is extended to remote tests. In conclusion, exam proctoring software can invade students' privacy and there are voices who question its use and even proctoring of in-person exams is questioned by one of the top U.S. universities. This is just the beginning. In our case, we were able to convince authorities of the privacy risk of using automated proctoring, and they adopted the Stanford approach. I am sure that if you search a bit deeper, you will find much more information on this issue. You may recall a few weeks ago the consternation, the consternation that was generated when I mentioned the story of the blind accessible urinal that had been developed. Well, here's one that will probably leave you gobsmacked as well. And I use the term gobsmacked deliberately because this is all about your gob. You see, industrial designer Jexter Lim has created a range of adaptive tableware for the visually impaired. I mean, we're all starving to death, right? So we absolutely need this. It's called Eatsy. That's cute. Like easy with a T in the middle. So Eatsy. And the set comprises a plate, bowl, cup, and utensils. Each item has a distinct feature that provides sensory cues to those with visual impairments. For example, the plate features a raised corner and slope to trap food. The curvature of the plate acts as a guide to direct the spoon to the corner for scooping. But wait, there's more. I mean, you can see this on the infomercials, right? God help us all. Meanwhile, the corners also serve as a spot for drinking and pouring. Eatsy tableware has distinctive tactile features to aid the visually impaired. The design of the cup features a food-safe silicon flap, which indents inward to secure the spout for pouring. Finally, cutlery can be hooked onto the sides of the plate, to prevent them from slipping into the bowl or out of reach. The tableware can be used by anyone, including left- and right-handed individuals, as well as children and the elderly. The designer says that the tableware can be stacked up for easy storage when not in use, which is hopefully all the time, i got to say. He goes on, Dining is something that we usually take for granted. However, for the visually impaired, simple tasks like eating and pouring can be extremely challenging. For the visually impaired, they cannot gauge the amount of food picked up with a spoon, and much uneaten food is usually left scattered around the plate. Furthermore, misalignment of the spout to the cup while pouring water and cutlery falling into a hot bowl of soup are the worst experiences to deal with without proper vision. Sometimes there are just no words. I wonder how we survived all this time without Eatsy. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.